Okay, so we're going to be tackling two heavy topics today. They're marginally different, so bear with me. The first is belief when it intersects with your research. As a Muslim whose career is basically Islam and often it's also being Muslim, I can testify that it's a hard line to walk. I often intentionally mention that the liturgy and prayer books I work on as an academic, as a researcher, the stuff I'm publishing in academic journals and I'm hoping to write about in a long form book, that I use these books as a believer, that I, I pray from them. I creep it into the footnotes, the conclusions of essays. I think I try to do it in part because I love my faith for all of its complexities and also because I've had good role models who've taught me why that's important. We're going to talk to one of those role models today. A dear friend of mine who knows what it is to walk between worlds, who articulates belief. We're also going to, because it's the theme of this series, you know, talk about knowledge systems and how they're produced, specifically library cataloging, and how cataloging should fit the knowledge system it describes, not the other way around. We shouldn't force the knowledge system to fit into a cataloging standard, especially if it was developed for another body of knowledge. I swear this unique combo will make sense in a second, okay? <laughs> Just bear with me until I introduce our guests. Welcome to Knowledge and Its Producers, a limited series from the Maidan, produced by me, N.A. Mansour. In each episode, we'll be talking to people who are at the forefront of knowledge production, typically away from traditional educational power structures. We'll be talking to people who curate, who edit, who run research centers, who write, and more. My field of study is Islamic studies and modern Arabic intellectual and visual history, and we'll be talking to people who've been into the study of Islam and the Muslim-majority world. But that doesn't mean they'll be Muslim themselves or that they'll be Arab or Turkish. It just means that we don't have perfect terms for describing this big intersecting world. Not yet, at least. The goal is to get a wide variety of people talking about different ways of accessing history, ideas, and more. To uplift the people we're interviewing. And to inspire you. Our guest today is Jean Druel, who is French and lives in Cairo. He's also a member of the Dominican Order, part of the Catholic Church. After a master's degree in theology and Coptic petrology, he graduated in teaching Arabic as a foreign language at the American University of Cairo with a thesis titled Emphatic Sounds in Educated Kyrene Arabic, 2006. In 2012, he completed a PhD thesis in the history of Arabic grammar in the Netherlands titled Numerals in Arabic Grammatical Theory. He managed the 200 project, which ran from 2013 until 2016, the aim of which was the historical contextualization of the works of 200 authors of the Arab Islamic heritage. He served as director of the Dominican Institute for Oriental Studies, IDEO for short, in Cairo between 2014 and 2020. IDEO includes a large library that is open to the public and has an unusual catalog. See, I told you it would make sense. He currently studies a manuscript of Sibawais Kitab that has never been edited. That's a grammatical text, for those of you who aren't in the know or aren't obsessed with Arabic grammar. So we recorded this episode back when you could still spend time with people safely, back in late 2013, when this podcast was just an idea and Jean was my willing test subject. We were spending a lot of time together professionally and socially, so I just asked him if he wanted to do it one day, and he obliged. So you're about to hear quite a bit of the soundscape of Cairo, Egypt in the background, as well as maybe the going-ons of the library where we recorded this because Jean's office had high walls and we were getting an echo, so we just went to the library in the other part of the building. During this podcast, we'll also hear some names, Luke, Adrian, Sunil, Reginald, Emilio, and Paul. Those are other brothers of the Dominican order who lived at Idio at the time. They're my friends, so in some way, this is dedicated to them. Let's start with an easy question. What did you eat for breakfast today? Um, cake. Uh, we, had, um, we have a friend uh, who spends one month in Egypt every year. He works in the garden. He's a retired um, friend of us and he cooks um, a fantastic walnut apple cake. So I had that for breakfast. Is that a normal breakfast for a Catholic priest slash Dominican brother who also is the director of a research center? It is. It is very much so. I like to, um, I like to eat whatever is available. Yesterday I had crepes, you know, the uh, like pancakes. Uh, maybe, maybe the day before peanut butter, like I eat whatever is there. I love to, okay, my favorite sport, my, you know, what I, in life makes me 
live, what makes me wake up in the morning and, and go through the day and is adaptation. I love to adapt. So I adapt to, I, I, I mean, if I feel any problem, I'm, I'm like, okay, you're not adapting enough. So I open the fridge in the morning and see what is there and I eat it. I love to do this. <laughs> I hate having a routine. Really? Why? So, because I think I'm, I'm fossilizing. I don't like fossilization. Like I like to the, the, the challenge of just adapting. Is it hot? Is it cold? Is, it, is there food? Is there not food? Is there water? Is there not water? Is, is, is there something to do? What I like, I like to adapt. It's a sport. Is that what suits you to this life? And I'm going to ask you what this life is in a second, but do you think this is what suits you for this role that you play? No, no I don't think so. There is a, a, a different, different styles. Uh, my predecessor would not do the same. He would not, he would have more like a line. He would have um, things that he likes and dislikes. Um, so he, he, I would adapt to what, to his style and he would have a style. I don't, I, you know, it's, I think it's personal. Okay, so let's go with the foundational question that I think we do need to ask you because it's when I think about what you do and the more time I spend with you, I have a difficult time pinpointing what you do because you're so good at so many things. Okay. I say this as your friend. Okay. I can also be cruel to you. You know this. Oh, no. Okay. Um, you don't need to. But your role as the director of El Mahad Dominican, EDO, the Dominican Institute for Orientals, is that the full mm -hmm. acronym? Mm -hmm. um, is quite multifaceted because you wear the academic hat. You also wear the librarian hat because your library is incredible. It's one of the best, I think, in the world, if not, I mean, in Egypt, if not the world for Islamic studies of any period. I mean, it's always it's an incredible collection. Um, but then you also wear, of course, the hat of being a member of this religious order. You're a religious. Um, can you, that's me defining you. And then, of course, you have all these other skills. Of course, you're a novelist. <laughs> this is not yet. You're a gymnast. In March, in March. You're a diver. You're all these, I mean, someone, someone the other day said that you're a fish in the water. I mean, like you oh, were yes. so many wonderful I things. I am the fish in the you're, water. Cat lover, you're you're all these things, mashallah. Okay, okay, mashallah. Um, so where do you want to go? <laughs> so what would you define if if I was to ask you at a dinner party, who are you? Mm -hmm. What do you do for a living? Mm -hmm. Would you tell me? So um, I would say I am a French monk, trained as a teacher of Arabic and researcher in Arabic linguistics who's been appointed director of an Islamic Institute for, for six years, I mean, three plus three. And then uh, I love to adapt. <laughs> I love to adapt. I'm in Egypt, I love to go to the desert and the Red Sea. I guess if I had been living um, in Japan or in Peru, I would be loving, you know, tea ceremony and, and I would just adapt. And what makes me my, my problem with the, what I think is behind your question about identity, what is, if I can try to define my identity, I think I don't know yet what my identity is. Because let's imagine, okay, I'm almost 50. Let's say I'm, I'm 49. Really? Yeah. So let's imagine, let's imagine that I would spend the next 20 years in China. What will I become? Who will I become? Um, and... I cannot say yet. So I think our identity is in front of us, not behind us. So where I come from, I come from a, a small village in France, uh, from a Catholic background. Um, lots of uh, traveling and languages. This is what is behind, and lots of music. This is what is behind me. Um, where I'm going, I'm going to more uh, big cities, international, um, Islamic studies, Arabic language, more sport. I was not such. A, I was not doing any sport when I was a kid. Just some basketball, but little. I mean, not not much. So this is where I'm going now. Where I will be in twenty years from now, I have no idea. I have no idea. If, if for example, I'm appointed in Rome in the Dominican Order in Rome to manage, for example, to coordinate 
um, the studies at the level of the order, uh, then I would be traveling uh, to different many places and trying to figure out um, and organize the study programs for the brothers at the level of the world, which is very probable. I mean, this is something that can happen. Who will I become? So let's let's look at the institutional for a moment. What this is a Catholic research center, so to speak, of it the Dominican is. Order. It is. Um, here in Egypt. It's been here for quite a long time. 70 years. Uh, it has an interesting relationship with, I think, a positive relationship with local Muslim religious institutions. Yeah, very much so, very much so. So tell me about the Institute. Tell me about its history. And then I want to ask you about its goals. So the Institute was born out of the desire of a brother, uh, Antonin Joussaint. He's a French brother. He was a specialist. He was an archaeologist and anthropologist, and he was specialist of the tribes in, Arabi, in uh, Arabia. He was knowing quite well uh, dialect, Arabic dialects uh, of the Arabian Peninsula. He was. Uh, he did some exploration in Madain Saleh, and in uh, um, so we have his explorations of the peninsula. So he wanted, and he was living in Jerusalem, in the biblical school. He wanted. Uh, the Dominican order to devote a number of brothers to the study of Islam. It was his secret passion. So he built this place and he did some lobbying uh, with the Dominican order and with uh, the Vatican so that at some point the Vatican would ask the Dominicans to, um, to establish the institute and it worked. So it was in 45, 1945 that the Vatican asked this from the Dominicans and the Dominicans, the French Dominicans uh, agreed and they sent three brothers in this place that had been existing for uh, almost 15 years uh, before. Um, existing physically here physically in Cairo. Here. He built it. Antonin Jossin built the place. Um, and his mission was to build um, a sister priory of Jerusalem for the archaeological studies. So he said yes, but he did it with another purpose, which was the Islamic Institute. So he built a place as asked, but he was lobbying for something else at the same time. And so after World War II, three brothers came here, came here, one Egyptian and two French, and they began to uh, buy books and study Arabic and Islam. This is how it began. Um. I do. I mean, this is one of my favorite places in the entire world. I think no. I've, I've said this multiple times, often when you're not there. Oh. Um, I think it's a wonderful place. It's a great model for interfaith engagement. Um, I think the level of respect that you all pay to Islam, speaking as a Muslim, just always makes me so in awe of all of you. I think you're so well, unlike a lot of other research centers, you're so well integrated into Egyptian, the Egyptian community, you're right up the street from Al-Azhar. I mean, it literally is 15 minute walk, 20 minute walk. Um, and also when I sit in your library, which is open to the public for a very small fee for a year, um, it the number of people and the diverse types, I mean, you don't necessarily have crowds coming in, which is fine with me because then it's nice and quiet, but the different types of people that you have come in through the doors is astounding. And the lectures you run, your attempts to have everything in Arabic, for example, like it it just, I think you're able to accomplish what a lot of other research centers are not. And also the place is physically beautiful. A woman who stayed here once told me um, that she was amazed that a group of men was able to accomplish a feat of physical beauty. I mean, you have the garden, you have the architecture, everything's organized, all these little design, like just touches. Yeah, she was like, I don't, I didn't think men were capable of that. <laughs> this is good. But yeah, it's it's a wonderful place and I find it just, it's, okay. it's, it's, there's nothing else like it in the world and you all should be Whoa. very proud. Whoa. Okay. Um, okay, so, when you took over, uh, you became director of the Institute mm -hmm. t uh, six years ago, right? Yeah, five years ago. Five years ago, and this is your sixth year. Yeah. Um, what has your sort of, what, were you, what have your goals as director been? I don't think I had goals. Um, 
I think the, uh, the, the Institute was accomplishing a transition from financial insecurity to financial security. And this new security would enable us to focus more on research. You got a donation, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was... Uh, so my predecessor was spending most of his time looking for money. So he didn't have much time to focus on communication, um, diffusing uh, research. He was not, uh, he, he, could, he had some knowledge of dialect, but he would not be able to read the text in Arabic uh, and not speak in Arabic and, and give a lecture in Arabic. So And really, wait, you've been fluent for quite a long time in Arabic. Yeah, yeah, I've been here for 25 years. So yeah, I've been fluent for a long time. So depending on his abilities and the, and the necessities of the Institute was to find money and to, to uh, secure uh, finances of the Institute. He was relying on the, the younger generation to do research, but he was not no research himself. And so he would spend lots of time looking for money. And um, when I came and at the end of his term, uh, finances were secured by a big donation and good relations with a foundation in France that supports us. So I came in with lots of time because I would not spend time, lose time looking for money. So lots of time and knowledge of Arabic. So quite naturally, um, I began to involve more into the Egyptian world of uh, research, um, setting up cooperations with uh, Al Azhar University, with um, uh, the Arabic Manuscript Institute, Institute. So, because I had time to do it, that he didn't. So this it wasn't a goal that I had. It was like I had all this time and, and knowledge of Arabic that enabled me to do this, um, which make, makes it possible for us now to focus more on research. And what I'm, after six years, what I will be... Um, handing down to the next generation would be um, the possibility to teach because the message, I mean the, the, the younger generation they want to teach they want to and I think the world needs more teaching we need more formation so I think and I've, I've been not so good at it I didn't do it much I'm a teacher myself but I didn't do it much uh, we were focusing much more on um, communication, making the Institute more known, especially in the Arab world. And I think we've, we've reached something nice uh, with the help of the others, the website, the, the catalog, systematic transla uh, tr um, translation of everything in English and Arabic. So I think um, I, I did a lot of work on communication and diffusing our research. Um, I think the next generation is ready now and, and is willing to get more involved into teaching. What, how is research folded into the goals of IDEO? Like how does it function on a day-to-day -day basis? How, how big a part of it, your lives is it? And how do you feature research? The, um, maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, research was highly valued and uh, as opposed to teaching, as opposed to uh, um, diffusing knowledge and, and reaching out. So the model that existed when I arrived here in 94 was we are scholars locked in our rooms. Uh, we live literally on a bunch of books and we spend eight hours uh, a day reading and, and searching. And we publish in scientific journals. And you have your own journal. Yeah, video. we have our own. So this was the model. This was how they were living. They didn't have any money at the time. So they were uh, sparing any, uh, every, uh, every penny to buy books. So they were literally eating canned food and potato. And when I arrived in 94, it was that way. Then my predecessor tried to change this more into looking for money. So making so that we would live better. We would have a garden, we would have food, we would have cars, we would have um, AC. And so the books were always a priority. But now with the more money that he succeeded in, in gathering, 
we would live better and we would have uh, yeah, better chances to do better research. And then I came and my priority, because I had time to do it, as I said, my priority was to make our research known, to spread it more, to let people know the existence of this institute. Um, um, my predecessor built the, the new library, which gave us more visibility, so people began to, began to come here. But they would not find activities in the Arabic. Everything was still in French at that time. So in 2002, when a new building was built, everything was still in French. So people would know us, eventually come to use the books, but they would not engage with us much. Um, there was no seminar, there was no uh, Arabic website, there was no... We would not publish Arabic articles, would not have lectures and conferences. So this is what I did because I was able to when I um, took over uh, direction in 2014. So my predecessor was between 2002 and 2014, it was for 12 years, just looking for money basically. So since 2014, um, I began to spread as much as I could in three languages about the Institute and develop all these uh, corporations and, and diffuse uh, research. So you mentioned earlier, maybe about five minutes ago, the catalog. Um, and the library itself here, in addition to being very unique, in addition to having this rare books collection, which is incredible, has a catalog, which is quite, that you've developed, your, that the Institute has developed itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit more about it and how individuals beyond Egypt can use it? Because it's quite useful. So the um, IFLA, the International Foundation for Library Associations, uh, published a few years ago a new bibliographic model, a new way of describing uh, printed resources. Um, and we decided to adopt it as, as soon as it came out because it is much more adapted to describing the Islamic heritage than the traditional model. The traditional model is known as uh, Mark or Unimark or, and um, it is a very flat model. So you have a resource, a book, and you just type in the system what is on the book. It's very flat. Uh, it's useful, people have been using this for years and years, but it's very useful, but uh, the Arabic heritage, Islamic heritage books and the production, intellectual production, needs much more than that. First, um, all in Turath, in Islamic Turath, all the, the works, I don't want to speak of books, now I'm speaking of works themselves, they are connected. Commentaries, refutation, nazm, shari, talkhis, muhtasar. You have like diff many different relations possible between works. We need to connect them. So if you have a sharh kitab sibawi, you need to connect the sharh to the kitab. But if you take on a flat level, a library like us, we have maybe, I don't know, 12 editions of the kitab. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to connect each edition to each edition of the Sharh. For example, uh, Sharh Sirafi has only one edition. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to connect it to the, to the book, Kitab Sibawi. But we have 12 editions of Kitab Sibawi. So what do we do? We connect Sharh Sirafi, the only edition that we have of Sharh Sirafi, to the 12 editions? No, we need a record of Kitab Sibawi independent from its editions something that is called in the system Kitab Sibawi. And this is a work. It's not a book anymore. It's the work itself. And if you say, if you, if you look at uh, some other commentaries of Sibawi may have ma many editions. So they are also works. So we have this layer of work. Actually, the model, the, the new IFLA model has four levels. Work, expression, manifestation, and item. So it's not flat. It's it's like a pyramid, we're in Egypt. It's a pyramid. <laughs> At the top, you have the work, one single work. Then below, you have many expressions and many editions and many items. Uh, some of them are electronic PDFs. Some of them are manuscripts. Some of them are printed. 
So we gather them all below the word, the head of the pyramid, and all the heads of the pyramids are connected. So this intellectual model that was developed by IFLA, there is no software that can bracket the data. So the model exists, but no software is available to, to catalog it, to use it. So we developed our own software to, cat, to, to, to do this, to be able to catalog the books in this new framework. So what we discovered is that doing it, uh, uh, we were giving a very detailed image of the Islamic Torah, very detailed. And you can connect different levels. For example, book can be the commentary on a specific edition. One given item can be commented because it, it belonged to Tar Hussein and it was and then you have an article on this item. So you can connect at different levels. You don't have to connect only horizontally. Um, so we are natively using a system that now other libraries are trying to discover. But our experience is that they don't understand much of it because they don't use it natively. We use it natively. So sometimes we see things that they just have a sense of, but we, we've been using for years now. So uh, this is the new system. How it can be useful to other people, not in Egypt, because sometimes scholars would get lost into a traditional catalog. If you see all the, if you type in a given catalog, Kitab Sibawi, either it is a research library, and then you would find 20 records, and it takes time to discover what is what. So that's, is this a commentary? Is this an edition? Is this a reprint? Is this a translation? What is this? So either you have this and you have 20, 20 flat records next to one another and you get a bit lost, or it's not a research library and you have like one record. Mm -hmm. Okay, simple. Then you don't. But in our catalog, we have both. We have one record, Kitab Sibawe. It's just the Kitab Sibawe whatever. And we have the 20 records or the 30 records of um, all the different editions and translations and everything. So scholars, they tell us that they use our catalog to understand what is at stake. And then they go to their own library and they pick the books. For example, you have it happens very, very often that a book would have a title um, printed on the book which is not necessarily the title that the author intended. And you may have another edition with a different title, but it's the same book. Um, in our catalog, we have a way of, of recording the or I mean, original, if you wish, title of the work and the different possible existing printed titles. And we also, sometimes a book, it's not obvious from the title that it is a commentary, it is a refutation. Sometimes you have, for example, um, and you also have lost books. For example, I was mentioning, I was thinking of Kitab al-Intisar. Kitab al-Intisar was written by an Egyptian scholar uh, called Ibn Wallad. What is Kitab al-Intisar? And it's been edited um, twice. Once in the Netherlands and once, once in, I think, Egypt. What is Kitab al-Intisar? Actually, it's a refutation of Al-Mubarrad's refutation of Sibawi's Kitab. And Mubarak's kitab is, is lost. This refutation of the kitab is lost. So in our catalog, if you open it, you have Kitab el-Intisar. You see the bibliographical data about it. You see the second edition of it. And if you go up at the level of the work, you see it is actually, although the title may, may not be so obvious at first, you see it is a refutation of a book that is lost, which is itself a refutation of another book. All this network make it easier for the scholars to understand what they have in their hands and what they're looking for. Sometimes the title is obvious, like Sharh al-Idah, okay, khalas, it's the Sharh of another book. But in our catalog, it's connected. So in a regular catalog, you have to look again for the Idah, and they have many Idah. So which Idah? Is it a, connect, is it, is it a commentary? So, so our catalog, if you're on-site, you use the lesser levels because you want the books in the end. If you're not on site, you use the higher levels, which are, it's like a cartography of the Islamic heritage. 
books are written in treatises and commentaries and refutations and um, which help you understand what you have in your hands. I would say this. Yeah, that's an excellent summation of it. And again, I would recommend that researchers, even outside of Egypt, use it because it allows you, as you said, to see the lineage of that book. And even I think you've linked a bunch of the academic studies. We do. We do. We, to... we link everything possible. Um, like, for, for example, for Kitab Siba, we have like more than 200 articles, uh, academic research on it, and it's all connected. And we also record data that we don't, books that we don't have. We, we don't have any problem with this because at the higher level, we may not have it, but we can still do a, a type a record for it and say it's lost or it's not available or it's a still manuscript and we don't have it. But it helps connect it to the other uh, other works and understand what is there. There is something I forgot to say is that we also systematically catalog uh, at the piece analytical level, like inside the book, inside a journal. So this, for example, if you think of JSTOR, uh, JSTOR is a very practical tool that you use to find articles that otherwise would take you years to discover. It's maybe in a journal, it's, you, but you don't have an equivalent of an Arabic website that would be like JSTOR for Arabic newspaper, uh, journals. You do have a Manzuma, but it's not well designed, it's not easy to find. And it's only accessible in certain countries. So uh, Al-Kindi does it. So we have one lady, Dalal, full-time uh, cataloging articles in journals in Arabic so if or, or in uh, proceedings. So for example, you would discover through our catalog that a journal you may have in your university contains a text edition that is not signaled by anyone. Mm -hmm. So it is, uh, you, you'd find it through our catalog, and then you'd go in your own stacks and, and take the journal. You have it, but you don't know what is inside. No, this is a problem with anything that's not in a European language. If it's a journal, yeah, at Princeton, where I'm based at, we have the editions. It's just that it's hard to find, unless you want to look through every physical journal. Yeah, so in our catalog, yeah. it is, there is a record for everything. Um, so I do know, I mean, you ref, you alluded to this vaguely, that you are a linguist, you study the history of Arabic grammar. How much time out of your day do you give to your own research? And what form does that take? Like, what is the output? Are you writing articles? Are you doing critical editions? Are... So uh, I'm supposed to be part-time uh, director and part-time researcher. Actually, it doesn't work exactly that way. Um, in the summer, I'm full-time researcher. Um, in September and October, I don't have one minute for my, for, for my own research because it's the beginning of the academic year. Lots of things uh, I, I have to be uh, set up. So, for example, right now, it's been like three months. I could not, I was not able to spend more than one, two hours, uh, one or two hours um, on my research. So, um, I'm working on two different things. I'm working on a critical edition of Kitab Sibawe based on a very strange manuscript, a parchment, which has been torn between three places, in Milan, in Kazan, and in London. So I gathered the images, high definition, and I edit the text. It's a very strange manuscript. It's been um, edited three times. So we have, it's a fifth 11th century parchment from North Africa and it's been edited, corrected, amended uh, by three different successive hands. So I have four layers of the text and I'm editing the four layers. Um, this is something I'm doing in the long run and um, in a more short term I'm writing articles and I give lectures on specific chapters on the Kitab based on this manuscript in order to establish my methodology, my editing methodology. So what I, uh, for example, at AUC, the American University, there is a conference in December of Arabic linguistics. And uh, with other colleagues, we are working on one given chapter of Kitab Sibawe. So I will do my edition 
the, uh, the scientific edition of my manuscript and present my results on this chapter at this lecture. This is what I, so this is what I do as a researcher. And then, of course, there's the thing that we've sort of danced around, which is religion itself. I mean, the role of the church is very clear here. Um, but to what extent are you a monk in a monastery? And what role does, I mean, you are a religious, but to what role does religion play in your day-to-day -day life, in the day-to-day -day life of the other brothers here? Um, so, yeah, it's like, it's a way of life. It's like being married or... It's, it's just, we live in a priory, we have prayers daily, uh, we live together, eat together, pray together, have meetings, decide the daily routine, daily life, take decisions, and etc. Um, for me, my experience after 25 years here is that it gives a very strong um, base, like, uh, how would you say this, um, to go engage very deep into Islam, into Islamic studies, into interreligious dialogue, because I'm so deeply rooted in a primary, in a community life, it is so tight that it gives lots of freedom, paradoxically maybe, um, it gives lots of freedom to go, to go very far into exploration of, of Islam. Um, this is one thing, so it helps me a lot um, not lose a sense of meaning, a sense of usefulness. Um, the second thing is that more and more, um, I think we can help Muslims overcome the current crisis of Islam, especially Arabic Islam, where they don't know how to connect between faith and, I would say, science, I would say, historiography, critical historiography. And very often they tell us, how do you do this? Like, you are completely modern in, in mind. Uh, you're wearing orange pants right now, I should I'm point out. I'm wearing orange pants <laughs> right now, and you're a monk. Like, how do you connect this? How do you hold those things together, mm -hmm. like critical approach and the fact you're a priest and a monk and, and you believe in it. Um, so, and they tell us, can you help us do the same? Like be con contemporary Muslims and human science aware and critical thinkers and historiographical, uh, have a historiographical approach to things and be deeply committed believers. Can you help us do this? So I think the advantage that, for example, we have over lay scholars in Islamic studies who would not be Muslims, like lay the typical French-American scholar, non-Muslim scholar of Islam, is that I believe, uh, unless the person is a very is a, is a believer himself, but what we have is that we know what it is to critically think of your faith. Um, the typical non-believer uh, Western scholar may be not so at ease with faith and thinking faith critically. I don't know if it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. I know we've had this conversation in different shades before. I mean, we were having this conversation before we turned on the microphone. Is, I mean, I don't know. I think you're, let me ask you a question. Is your sense that the break with critical engagement in one's faith in the Muslim world came with colonialism? Just as, a, as someone, I mean, I know you're not an Islamic study specialist, you're not a modern historian, but you've lived here and you have a sense of these things. This is a question that would be maybe better addressed to Adrien. Uh, he said, uh, he, he told me once that Adrian is one of the other brothers we should yeah, know here who yeah, studies yeah. Ibn Taymiyyah. Yeah, exactly. And um, he, he told me once that um, when uh, Europeans entered and colonized the Arab world and the Islamic Arab world, um, 
and they came with all their science and critical thinking and uh, the mere diversity, the mere difference. It was a shock here, of course, uh, to Muslims, and they would sometimes, um, how do you say this? They would they would um, hide or they would um, seek refuge into the something that would be more typically seen as Islamic, which is fiqh and sharia. So his interpretation is that the classical traditional ulama would feel threatened on the field of theology, philosophy, even Sufism, like, you know, because those fields were so well studied in the West and they would not be so typically Muslim, like, you know, we have something to say as Christians about theology, philosophy, Sufism, spirituality, history. So his interpretation is that the traditional ulama would say, okay, what is typically Islamic is fiqh and sharia. Yeah, and you guys have nothing to say on it. Like your, all your science has nothing to teach us. So it would be a protective uh, tactique mm -hmm. to seek refuge into sharia seen as a typical field that can never be colonized it's which made islam become equate to sharia today the drama i, th I think the the the, the 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 drama that islam is especially arabic islam is, is going through is that many muslims would believe islam is sharia which is very strange and very new. And this may be a consequence of colonialism as a reaction to invasion of all those human sciences into, into the field of a religion. So we will define Islam as something that colonial, colonialism would never enter. I agree with that to some extent. I think it happened a lot later than we think. I think it happened in the early days of, of independence, the decolonial post-colonial period. Um, I think there are pockets in this world that we live in where people feel that there is no conflict. But I think the more we articulate there is a conflict, the more people buy into that, which really scares me. Like, I don't see, I mean, something you're constantly telling me, and I think this is a line they use with a lot of people, is... Um, you know, I'm a Dominican, I'm a priest, I'm a brother, I'm a monk, and I can dress like this and you'll, you're wearing a graphic t-shirt or pink shorts or you like loud colors, which I admire about you and your dress. Um, but, uh, and, and people, I think are, sh I think you say that sometimes in reaction to the fact that people see you and they're like, exactly what you just said. And they're like, how can you be all these things? How can you be someone who believes? But I'm not alone. I mean, it's it's us. No. You know, I, I don't want to give the impression that I am different from my fellow brothers. Oh, no. We're just yeah. the same, all of us. If you see Luke, if you see Paul, if you see... Um, uh, Sunil. Yeah. So it's, it's something that we do collectively. It's and like, it's your order, yeah. too. I think your yeah. order has a reputation for I, this. I want to say this because it's not like my stuff and people who come to me to ask me, they come to us to ask us. Yes, but you wear the most orange of all pants. Maybe, but uh, <laughs> Paul has amazing uh, colors. Uh, the other day he was wearing a black jacket. But anyway, but it's funny, just um, on that same note, actually bringing up Paul, Sunil, and Luke, other brothers who are here for a shorter period to study and to learn Arabic because you have this fellowship program. Is yeah. that what you call it? Um, I value my conversations with them and with all of you on a day-to-day -day basis because it's these times when you you when Islam as a theological school of thought and Christianity as a theological school of thought can have this interaction. And it's fun to sit down and to compare notes on how we feel as believers. Um, and the other night we were, we were just hanging out and we were talking, we began having this conversation about, I think abortion. And then we got to um, the theology of evolution and the Big Bang Theory, and it was me, them, and then someone who identifies as an atheist. And it was this really dynamic conversation where we were able to, well, it wasn't fun when Paul and the other individual decided that they know a lot about science, because we're all humanists in the room. Let's stop pretending we know what happens in physics. But it was really interesting to see this theological question of how do you answer the question of why does the universe come into being? And what comes before God? 
Like, is there something that comes before God? What is, what is, what is, how do you deal with all these questions? And it was this moment where we were all taking each other very seriously as people who belong to intellectual traditions of faith. And it's wonderful. And I hope that those conversations can happen more often. I think it, they don't happen in this, in academia, it doesn't happen. And I, I, I think we've been speaking about indirectly about the advantages that you have as an academic who isn't a professor who isn't part of the traditional academy, is that you have all this freedom to write at your own pace, to do all these side projects. Like we, I mentioned at some point that you've written a novel <laughs> that is soon to be published in French. Um, it's just, yeah, I mean, are there any other advantages you feel to not being a professor? To not being a professor? Yeah. Um, I, uh, I have time. I don't have to make to, to give make classes when I travel. So many people. I do have lots of administrative stuff to do, especially because I'm the director. But the um, uh, my schedule is free. I mean, if I want to to go somewhere for a week to study, if I want to go, I went to Pakistan twice and just decide to go. So I, I'm not bound by a calendar, uh, an agenda, which is the case very often in academia. People are teaching there. And also the, um, I would say the, the budget, uh, we don't have, a, which is good and bad, but we don't have a supervision entity above us that tells us do this and do that. We just do what we want. Yeah. So um, we decide the direction where we're going. We, we have this kind of freedom. It's good and bad at the same time, because also sometimes, um, if we're not challenged by someone who pushes you into some direction, it's you may maybe lose a sense of purpose sometimes. So we have to always, so we compensate for this by the fact that we are very communitarian. We decide everything together. I don't take decisions without asking the others. And so I, I can guarantee that I'm not going my own way and, and in a crazy direction like we, check uh, all of us and we are very different so we have different approaches different generations different so uh, so in that way i can guarantee that so unanimity and community thinking prevents us from uh, misusing the kind of freedom we have because we don't have any mother institution above us i would say this yeah i would say this. the other the other thing that i would say relating to the, the previous topic is that here in Egypt, I don't want to generalize too much, but in Egypt, the typical Muslim scholar would not be able and would not want to put his faith between brackets when discussing a given topic. Yeah. So it's impossible or almost impossible for an Egyptian scholar in the Azhar University, in, in Dar al-Ulum, to, to tell you, for example, I don't speak as a Muslim, just like if you see, no, they do all, they always speak uh, as Muslims. So we know as French monks and scholars that sometimes it's not the same thing to speak as a believer and to speak as a researcher. It's two different things. And sometimes things that uh, our job is to connect between those things and to be able to travel between those different levels. But here they don't like to do it. And I know what it is to speak as a believer. So, uh, yeah, I think this kind of flexibility uh, that we have makes it, I mean, I can very easily speak in a Western academic uh, situation where my faith is completely in brackets and I don't have to mention it. And it's not, uh, supposedly, it's not interfering with what I say. And here, where people, they want me to interact as a Christian because if, they, if we have a cooperation with Al-Azhar, they want to know what we as Christians think, not we as Western colors. Um, and, they, and they expect us to, to react as Christians because they want to see, as I said before, how we, how for us, faith and critical thinking come together. So they want to see it. If we just put faith in brackets, we don't help them. So it's very moving because they tell us once, for example, I was giving a lecture at Al-Azhar about, um, it was about the Institute, I think, and about, and I told them, why didn't you come dressed as a monk? And I say, 
Well, good question. I think I came dressed uh, in, in with a suit because I, I'm not here as a monk. I'm, I'm here to speak to you as a scholar. And they told me, it was an amphitheater of maybe 100 people, no, we welcome you as a monk and a scholar. We don't want to make a separation between the two. So it's it's like, okay. It's, uh, and at the end of the lecture, one guy asked me a question about a video he saw. Um, it's a spiritual lecture I gave in France. And he, he said, I watched this video and you say this and this, can you comment? And I was like shocked myself. Like I came here to speak about Arabic studies and, and I have to answer a question about my encounter with God. And I was like, it feels strange for me, but for them, they want to see it. They want mm. to see that it is possible to be a believer and a critical thinker. So they always push us into this direction. I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for your listening and recording and um, diffusing uh, the, the activities of this institute. Well, I mean, I like I said, I have a ridiculously deep well in my heart for all of you. And the more Thank time you. I spend with all of you, Thank you, I can never experience the love that you have for each other as brothers because I'm not one of you, despite my repeated requests to be made one of you. I know, I know, I know, yes, but we are you, sexist. You have rules. You have to be Christian. You have to be a man. I know, it's, it's, it's stupid. It's, yeah. It is stupid. But I do feel a lot of... As Come back in, you know, 200 years, I think things will change. I don't have time, but uh, I do have so much love for each of you. I mean, all of you have just dealt with me with such respect. But also, you're all such characters. Like, you all have opinions. And stop, stop, stop. It's, <laughs> it's wonderful. But anyway, thank, thank you so much for your time and the service you do for Muslims and the thank people of Egypt. Thank you so much. And, um, yeah. Thank you for listening, and again, a big thank you to Jean Druel. You can follow the Idio at Idio Cairo on Twitter. You can follow me at NAMonsur26, and you can follow the Maidan at the Maidan on Twitter. The production team includes Micah Hughes, who you can follow at Micah A. Hughes, and Ahmed Tekeliolu, and most importantly, audio editor who does our post production, Sophie Potts. A big thank you to the Loose Foundation. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Be sure to subscribe or follow the Maidan on social media for upcoming episodes and more in the Maidan selection of podcasts.